This episode is part of our fantastic collaboration with the University of Technology Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, spearheaded by its fearless dean, Professor Alan Davison, who's committed to making UTS the place for independent thinking on Australian campuses. I'm a visiting fellow there, and we team up for a series called Permission to Think, of which this is the latest instalment. Expand your mind and enjoy. G'day, humans. Welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. Here's a dangerous idea for you. You are inconsistent in judging other people. You give people who agree with you more of a pass than people who disagree with you. You judge your enemies more harshly than your friends. I suppose that's not that controversial when you put it that way. But when you shift that into the political and cultural arena and say that you are probably more forgiving of people who are doing bad thinking as long as they end up where you are, and you're probably likelier to jump in on a pile on against people you disagree with, even if they're being reasonable in their thinking, then it becomes a little bit more uncomfortable. Corey Clark is a behavioral scientist. She does research into bias, social contagion, especially in relation to academic research. She looks at the evolutionary behavioral roots of being ostracized from tribes, and she's done serious, hard scientific research into the different ways in which people either forgive or condemn other people or even something as abstract as an academic paper if the conclusion uh, doesn't accord with their pre-existing beliefs. In this world of social media deceiving us and institutions decaying and mainstream media losing trust and public health officials being pilloried, it's more important than ever to hear from Corey. She's fabulous, she's articulate, she's funny. Uh, Please enjoy it as much as I did this uh, conversation with the one and only Corey Clark. Uh, I love your work about about how people hold double standards in how we evaluate uh, behavior and how we evaluate information. Can you just give us a sketch of Wait, what are we already that rec- means? Are we already going? Yeah, sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Don't mind this show. I know those other shows might have professional introductions and whatnot. We don't care about such things. Okay. Sorry. So the question was how people have double standards in their evaluations of science. Yeah. Yeah, of, of people's inf- of people's behavior, I suppose. Oh, of other people's, people's behavior. behavior. Yeah, we have a lot of double standards. Um, <laughs> but yeah, one paper of mine, we looked at how people. Uh, desire to punish and attribute free will to people that they want to punish more or less. And we did this in the context of political ideology. So it was people evaluating either liberals or conservatives when they're liberal or conservative themselves. And perhaps it's not totally surprising that people want to punish um, outgroup members more than in-group members. But we also see that they attribute more free will to outgroup members when they misbehave than when uh, than in-group members. So they're essentially saying that People that they, you know, dislike for political reasons or people in their outgroup have more control over their bad behavior and are more responsible for their bad behavior, even when they're engaging in the exact same behavior. Um, How do you measure that? How do you test it? Um, on that one, it was a set of items about how how much freedom the individual had over their behavior in that situation. So, like, if I'm remembering, like, one of the scenarios was a reporter who didn't. 
um, didn't retract a story when she should have had, like, skepticism about her source. One of them was a person interfering with the political speech, like unplugging the microphone of a speaker that, that they didn't like. Um, and we essentially looked at how much – I don't remember the, the precise items, but they would have been things like how much – controlled this person how how much could they have done something different in this situation um and when it's your in-group member you're more likely to be like yeah they had no choice <laughs> and how are you sorting in groups and out groups is that by political by overt political affiliation like party political affiliation or is it yeah and those sort of ones it would have things been that i believe in and that one it would have been political ideology so yeah people's self-identification as liberal or conservative usually we measure that on a continuous scale so you know people who are um more extreme fall on the further ends but the we manipulated um whether people were in a particular so like for example one of them was i think an undergraduate student who was a member of like the young republicans or young democrats were in the US you know, a young Republican would be uh, typically on a conservative side and young Democrat on a liberal side. Yeah. Right. And you give them a scenario where, oh, someone is giving a speech and they're talking about what? What do you remember what the examples are? Is it like abortion <sighs> or is it like Donald Trump stole the election? Or... <laughs> this paper's a few years old. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's yeah, not what Donald was Trump the <laughs> it probably No, it wouldn't have been that. Um, it might have just been like a, we might have just said it was a Democrat or Republican speaker and not provided like the specific content of the speech. But I can't right. say that with certainty because, yeah, it's it's been a while. I've run a lot of studies since then. So it has to do. So is the is the, is what you're trying to dig into the the our our propensity to punish other people or our propensity to forgive other people or does it are those both sides of the same coin? So that when we looked at punishment, I suspect you would find the same kind of things for forgiveness, but I haven't looked at that specifically. But one thing that's interesting to me is that these desires to punish extend to all of these other judgments about the actual like facts of the situation. So there is like a whole set of findings that I would call like motivated responsibility judgments. And um, what that research shows is that when we want to punish and blame other people, we think they had we, – we think the person had more control over the situation. We think they could have done otherwise. We think they're more responsible for causing the bad outcome. Um, we are more likely to uh, deny science that, uh, you know, undermines um, – uh, free free will, the possibility that humans have free will. So all of these things that should be, you know, concrete features of the situation when people want to punish other people, they they sort of understand human psychology a bit differently and think that people right. have more responsibility and more control over their behavior. And who's right? Does it matter? Who's right about what free will? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like in that scenario, does it matter whether or not they're they're I guess being being correct in their belief about how much freedom people have to do otherwise? Um Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if we've ever looked at cuz these are sort of subjective judgments. So I don't yeah, know what I mean, is I guess the, I'm sort what of asking, is exact what is your amount? what is your underpinning bias here? Like what are your priors coming into this? Is is your are your priors that people basically behave tribally and then accuse other people in other tribes of being inconsistent mm -hmm. and and evil? Uh or is your your prior that we just accuse people of behaving that way because it suits our I don't know, preconceptions. Yeah, we 
we I don't think we know whether people are sort of exaggerating how responsible their outgroup is or downplaying how not responsible the in-group is. So that would be hard to say. And then I, I guess don't it also know. depends on the subject, doesn't it? How tribal that particular community mm-hmm. is or how anti-science that particular community is. It probably functions differently if you're talking about anti-vaxxers or something than it does if you're talking about something that has more scientific grounding. Yeah, and we, we, we did look at a sort of a large set of different scenarios trying to find things that liberals and conservatives find to be differently morally wrong. So, for example, uh, conservatives think homelessness or drug abuse is more morally wrong um, and they attribute more freedom to people in those particular conditions. So we kind of see that when you have a sort of behavior and outcome that a person views as more morally wrong, they view people as having more control over that. But again, like how much control do people actually have over becoming homeless or drug abuse? I don't even – that's – in some sense, it's an empirical question, but it'd be really hard to quantify and say, like, this is the correct amount. Yeah, right? and political um, philosophers have been arguing about that for centuries, and we're probably right. not at the I mean, people talk about, like, how genetically caused are things, but then people can debate, like, well, if, if it's genetically caused, are you responsible for that or not? <laughs> you know, because it's part of who you are. <laughs> well, I'm definitely not responsible for my genes. You didn't choose who you are. <laughs> You're not. You're not. I did not but... pick the uh, the genes. I did not pick the <laughs> But they are a sort of like a central part of you, right? So Yeah. Like, I mean, can well, it's you blame someone for that? When you talk about drug, about the the fault, I suppose, that we assign to people who find themselves addicted to drugs, I, I feel like there's been a big shift in that over the course of the opioid crisis where mm. when the main drug problem was crack in the 80s, it was very easy for people who'd never seen crack and no one they knew had used crack because it was limited to particular ethnic communities and particular geographical Mm -hmm. areas to demonize people who found themselves in that hole. And Mm -hmm. now that all of a sudden uh, doctors in white lab coats are handing it out to middle-class soccer moms, uh, handing out opioids (laughs) to middle-class soccer moms and they're finding themselves, uh, you know, giving hand jobs behind a, a, in a a parking lot (laughs) to score their next hit of fentanyl. Uh, it's a big, you know, it's not their fault anymore. These are people mm-hmm. who were lured into it by a corrupt system. And then, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you make of that shift. That would be, those would be really good uh, study materials to use to test for <laughs> double standards in these kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, that's another good example is like, who is, who is to blame for those behaviors and how much responsibility does the individual have uh it's hard to say and like sometimes i wonder if responsibility in people's minds adds up to more than a hundred percent like you know the doctors are to blame society is to blame maybe the people are to blame a little bit whoever is bringing the drugs into the country are to blame (laughs) like there's a lot of blame to go around um yeah, and, and, and the reason, I mean, one reason you get these sort of biases and people's evaluations of how much control people have is precisely because it's an ambiguous question with no clear answer. So it tends to be in those cases when you see bias and double standards because it's sort of easier for people to get away with it because no one can really call you out on it outside of the context of an experiment. You know, there's no right answer. So you can just turn it up or turn it down a little bit at your own convenience. I mean, people can call out hypocrisy over time. 
right? I mean, people and people do call out they the do. hypocrisy of people who wring their hands a lot about the opioid crisis, but didn't give a shit about about it when it was only affecting poor black people, for example. They they do, but it's rare in the real world that you get something that is exactly matched in every single conceivable right. way that right. you can do in the laboratory. So in a psychology study, you try to make things exactly the same. Whereas in the real world, real world, someone can be like, "Well, here are all the ways these cases are different," and right, thus my yes. different my different judgment is justified. On the basis yeah. of all of these differences between these cases, so so yeah, people do call people out for hypocrisy, but people often have, you know, semi-justifiable explanations for their hypocrisy, right? And then it's right. hard to know. What are those justifications in this in this case? Just to follow this particular case study, I mean, maybe that I don't know. People who were on crack also wanted to make money from crack, so they were culpable because they were trying to get rich, or they were. It it could have been. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about what people argue about those cases, but I imagine there are a variety of of differences, like potentially, like how does it contribute to, um, I don't know, like crime in the neighborhood? If people have good data on that, I don't know if they do. Um, right, a hand be, job in the parking lot is that, less deleterious <laughs> than uh, it could than be that like doctors store. are a better scapegoat than drug dealers. So, like when it comes to crack, it's not like someone that is trusted distributing it. Whereas in the case of doctors, maybe we want to hold them to a higher standard than right. we would yep. drug dealers. Yeah, so, and absolve the responsibility of the people who really liked taking uh, uh, oxycontin because a doctor gave right. it to them. So they, right. how could they have known otherwise? Because they did everything right by trusting. Right. They thought that it was going to be safe and then they sort of got tricked into getting addicted, you could say. Yeah, um, right. right. But again, are those Tr- the real reasons? Who knows? <laughs> right. But they're plausible right. they're con- justification. <laughs> yes. And it is convenient, isn't it, that they always seem to align with a person's tribe, a person's political mm-hmm. philosophy at the end of the day. So, I mean, another component to your work here that, that, that this is pointing towards is credulity, is our mm. likeliness to believe in bullshit. <laughs> and I suppose it's sort of commonsensical that if the bullshit is peddled by people who we think are good people, we're likelier to believe it than the whiff of bullshit from people who we think are bad. How does that show up? Yeah, so we look at um, mostly political biases. So how liberals and conservatives, when they're confronted with information that supports their desires, they're more likely to think it's high-quality information than that exact same information when it challenges their desires. So you can kind of take anything. Take um, uh, It could be a scientific study that has the exact same method. So one of the classic, one of the famous studies on this is by Lord Ross and Leper. Lord Leper and Ross, something like that, <laughs> in 1979. <laughs> I'll just nod and believe you either way. Don't worry. Um, and they did this with the death penalty where they had the exact same scientific studies that either said the death penalty, um, that that it um, is deterrent, it effectively deters, uh, uh, it, was it murder in this case, homicide, or just crime in general? In any case, either the death penalty was effective or not. And they found that people... And then they asked participants to evaluate not not the conclusions of the study, but the methods. Are these methods sufficient for asking this research question? And what they found is that people who uh, were pro-death penalty 
found the methods as higher quality when the results supported the deterrent efficacy of the death penalty, and the people who opposed the death penalty found the methods as higher quality when the conclusion ended up being um, the death penalty is not effective. So you see this bias in the evaluation of scientific methods based on the conclusion that is found by those methods. And, and I've done similar studies where I have people evaluate science, even things like, is this sample size sufficient to test this question? And even when the sample size is identical in the two studies, they'll say that sample size is sufficient when the conclusion supports their beliefs and it's not as sufficient if it, if it opposes their, their uh, political preferences and beliefs. So right. we have all these sort of like double standards in terms of like how high quality of information we need to be persuaded. Um, if it's something we don't want to believe, we have higher standards. And if it's something we do believe, we have low standards and we'll accept things even if it's not a very high quality piece of information. Is there a kernel of justification in that in the sense that I sort of understand the instinct from my own perspective of like, well, okay, the outcome it got was correct. Therefore, there's mm -hmm. a higher chance that the reasoning was correct too. I mean, if I give mm -hmm. you a mathematical, a, a full page mathematical proof that's a little bit too difficult for you to understand, uh, but you see that at the end, two plus two equals four, you're mm -hmm. going to eyeball it and go, well, I guess the maths probably adds up. And mm -hmm. if you see at the end that it's two plus two equals five, you're going to go, something was, was wrong in mm -hmm. the calculation. Yeah, so that is an argument that a lot of scholars have made in this sort of ongoing debate about how, like, should we even be allowed to call these biases and are these actually completely rational to hold the exact same piece of information to different standards if it comes to a conclusion that seems right versus wrong? Like, if, if a study, even if the study looked really high quality and it came to a conclusion that was obviously wrong, you'd be like, well, clearly something went went wrong here. This must not be as good of a study as I thought. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, we've tried to deal with that a bunch of different ways. The one that I find sort of most compelling is there have been a couple of studies, including in some of my own work, that this is maybe a little bit complicated, but essentially to try to look at an order effect. So you can either present one set of participants with a finding they would like and another set of participants with a finding they didn't like, and you see they treat those differently. And then you can maybe explain that away as rational. But if you give the same set of participants both sets, the exact same methods with the conclusion they like and a conclusion they don't like, what you see is then they try to anchor their second judgment to the first one. So whichever one they got first, if it was a study they didn't like and they said, oh, bad study, and then they get the second one that they do like, they're like, oh, bad study. Whereas if you reverse it and you do one they do like, they're like, oh, good study. And then you give them the conclusion they don't like, they're like, oh, I guess it's a good study. So like people at least seem to think themselves that it would be irrational to treat that differently. And if they were thinking, oh, it's rational to do this differently because the conclusions are implausible, thus the, the methods stink, you wouldn't expect to get that um, that anchoring of right. the second judgment um, when uh, when they when they see both sides of things. So anyway, it, it all all it so, suggests is that people don't think it's rational to treat them differently, even if we might argue it could be rational, right? Yes, I think I get that, but just clarify it for me. So I, let's say that I'm in favor of abortion rights and you provide mm -hmm. me with two papers, each of which have the same reasoning but reach opposite conclusions. Mm -hmm. If you show me both of them, or if you show me the one that support that I believe in first mm -hmm. and then you show me the, the same one, then I give it more credence, <clears throat> excuse mm -hmm. me, 
And if you show me the one that uh, reaches the conclusion that I disagree with that says that abortion should be outlawed, then the fact that I don't agree with the outcome means it essentially taints the entire process of reasoning when you then give me one that does support my so prior it would belief. Be, so, Is that right? So if we do abortion and let's say you're pro-choice and you first get a study that says blah, 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 this supports a pro-life perspective – and I say, what do you think of the sample size of the study? Was the sample size sufficient to address the research question? And you say, no, <laughs> because it came to the conclusion I don't like. Um, right. And then I say, you know, we, ac- we actually mixed up the results. The results turned out that it supports the pro-choice pers- perspective. What do you think of the sample size of the study? Then you're like, oh, I already said it was insufficient, so I guess it's insufficient. Uh, And then people will anchor their judgment. So what you end up seeing is that this bias effect you get when you present people – when you present different groups of people with different conclusions gets smaller when you give it to the same person because the same person doesn't think – because they spot what they're doing. Right. They they would right. they they perceive it as inconsistent. And then and then like you try to compare this to something else. Like if I said the scientist did a study where they had a turtle chase a cheetah, uh, the hundred turtles and a hundred cheetahs got into uh, a race, <laughs> and they concluded that the turtles that are faster than the cheetahs. What do you think of the methods? You would say, oh, they're crappy methods, and then you say, actually, we got the results wrong. The cheetahs. One, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> and the, the methods probably were fine, right? So, yeah. you know, for something like that, uh, you wouldn't think that you'd have to anchor the because it's just so obvious that everyone agrees that cheetahs are faster than turtles. <laughs> yeah, this is possible. Uh, we'd have to test it in a lab. It's a lab that I very much want to <laughs> work fair. at and I want to see That's it fair. happen. Uh, I want to see the turtles but getting eaten. They have to be like cheetahs. on separate tracks otherwise. Yeah, the turtles <laughs> wouldn't be good. Or the, or the cheetahs have to be well fed. <laughs> <laughs> there are some, uh, there are like crocodile races and cane toad races in uh, certain parts of the Australian tropics. So I think we could really? test this actually. We don't have cheetahs. Yeah, that, I mean they're at a pub. They do it at a pub, you know, where like a They'll pub? get these gigantic, horrible, horrible cane toads. Uh, you're like outside a pub in the tropical parts of the country, and they'll just put them in little laneways, and they'll just sort of nudge them along with and a crocodile. Horrible toads. No, the crocodile races are oh. separate. Uh, yeah, separate okay. things. They, there <laughs> okay. aren't toads. It's not toad v croc. It's just croc v croc okay. and toad v toad. Entertaining nonetheless. Uh, one of Australia's great highlights uh, for delight, but delights <laughs> tourists from the world over. Um, are, are lefties or, or conservatives more or like more bad or good at, at, at this stuff? Do you notice a difference? <laughs> Yeah, so um, my lab mates and I, along with my uh, PhD advisor, Pete Ditto, we did a meta-analysis looking at precisely this question, which is essentially a study where you average the effects of all other studies that have done this sort of thing, looking at political bias on the left and right. And when we average across all the studies, we see virtually no differences at all. So liberals and conservatives, we think, are probably, if not identically biased, very similarly biased. And there was another study that came out a couple years later that found the same thing with a large set of uh, materials. And and sort of humorously, before we did the meta-analysis, 
we asked a set of liberals and conservatives who was more biased, and both sides said the other side was more biased. Of so it was of like, of course they are. You know, Those assholes on the other side. They don't <laughs> yeah. know what they're talking about. Um, have you the other guy. Yeah. have you broken anything down by either like profession or class or um, education or something like that? Is this something that holds up through the ranks? So. There's a bit of debate on that. There's this really interesting study by a professor, Dan Cahan, who looked at um, sort of like biased math <laughs> in that he has these math? like tape math. Yeah, right. like trying Not to myth. solve a math problem. Not math. Got it. <laughs> Not math. Math. <laughs> like essentially trying to solve a math problem. Um, and uh, what he found was people were essentially biased and when the, the sort of mathematical uh, form, well, you know, whatever, how you solve this problem, if it was going to support a conclusion you didn't want to believe, you were worse at it than if it supported a conclusion you do want to believe. And he found that people who were better at math, who were more higher in numeracy, I think is what he calls it, um, they actually showed that effect more. And I believe in some of his other work he's found similar effects but some of that has been called into question so i would say on that one i don't think we know for sure but it is possible that more educated people potentially could be worse um, than less educated people but at, at minimum there's not good evidence that they're they're really better i don't think does he have a hypothesis for why more education would mean more susceptibility to these I biases? believe I believe the explanation is essentially that you have sort of more cognitive resources to defend your perspective. So if you're able to formulate a lot of reasons why you should be judging the information the way you are, then you might feel more justified. Whereas if you're like having a harder time with it, then, you know, you might not, you know, you might not mm. be able to come up with the explanation you would need to justify your your judgment. But again, I think that's all still up for debate. <laughs> that's fascinating. I, I mean, uh, this is from left field, but does any of this touch on or do, have you thought about conspiracy theories in all of this? The 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 pandemic I think has uh has unleashed uh, a wave or whatever is happening in the past 4 or 5 years. The pandemic certainly didn't help, but it may also be a confluence of social media and algorithms directing our attention mm -hmm. or uh, or whatever else. But I've certainly seen some of my more intelligent colleagues become the ones who are most susceptible to, I guess there's this kind of nerdy delight in finding connections between things, mm -hmm. being suspicious of authority, being suspicious of the mainstream narrative, and they're making stupid mistakes that I think a stupid person wouldn't make. Yeah, I mean, it could be one of those things where people who are higher and lower could be more susceptible compared to average people. But I do think with conspiracy theories, a lot of the time you get people who really are quite knowledgeable on a particular topic and they have all of this like really niche knowledge of, you know, maybe not that high quality studies that support the position or some some argument that that appears on its face compelling but really isn't. Um, so in those cases, I do think you can get, and, and also, you know, not just for the person themselves believing in a conspiracy theory, but on their ability to persuade others that the conspiracy is true, probably people who are more intelligent and know more about a topic are better able to attract followers, <laughs> right, mm. um, to go along with their perspectives. So 
I, I don't know if that – I'm sure that has been studied. I don't know what the the research there shows for sure, but I, mean, I think certainly – Sorry, finish that oh, thought. Sorry. Oh, no. I was just going to say like it does seem like you get sort of a lot of intellectual elites who can become leaders in uh, certain conspiracy theories and often they are quite intelligent and very well informed. Yeah. It's interesting. My buddy Sam Harris makes the point that there's not a lot of point in debating people who are very enthusiastic about a particular conspiracy theory because <laughs> nobody is going to – like if you meet someone who knows everything about Building 7 on 9-11 and the melting point of steel and the precise direction that the planes hit the towers, you can be pretty sure you're talking to a conspiracy theorist. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you're talking to someone who thinks 9-11 was an inside job or that the planes didn't really hit the buildings or something, right? Mm. Anyone who's genuinely on the page of the mainstream narrative has no need to acquire the arsenal of information that the person who's the, uh, who's the conspiracy theorist does. So, there's, you, you know, you're, you're essentially fundamentally out of your depth instantly. Nobody knows more about... Therosol or whatever it is in vaccines than Robert F. Kennedy Jr. You know, nobody mm. knows more about the unexplained, uh, you know, unidentified aerial phenomena than people who are deeply interested in mm-hmm. a- ascribing those things to extraterrestrial life. Nobody knows more right. about the way that the mRNA vaccines were hastily uh, brought into onto the market than Brett Weinstein. So there's, you know, it, it is interesting that the large, there is no correlation between increasing one's arsenal of knowledge and arriving at the truth. Um, well, that wouldn't or is suggest that, too cynical? That, <laughs> that wouldn't suggest that necessarily. Uh, I think you're right that a lot of, on a lot of topics, and especially for things where there are conspiracies there obviously aren't conspiracies regarding everything that's happened but for the things that there are semi-popular conspiracies probably a lot of the time the conspiracy theorists know more than even sort of general experts on the topic might be but that doesn't mean that there's necessarily no correlation between how much information you have and the truth and I know that would be a really hard question to test because I don't think we have a way of measuring all of the knowledge a person has. Tell me everything you know and I'll tell you how right you are. Well, you could give them a quiz. You could give them a quiz about... Yeah, uh, you can... Yeah, and, and you, know, you like, could go through the popular science uh, debunking of ni- of 9-11 conspiracy theories and you could ask people about, I don't know, yeah, but, the direction But just the, the claim in general that how much knowledge you have isn't necessarily associated with the truth it, it might be i just think it would be a really hard question to ask um, it, yeah and, and well it raises another question which is how does one then accumulate knowledge in a constructive way from as blank a slate mm-hmm. as one can so that you're building a thesis on the basis of the data rather than retroactively cherry picking data to fit a pre-existing thesis yeah i think not having like strong commitments not tying your identity to anything that is an empirical belief that you could be wrong about. Um, I wor- I promote adversarial collaborations in science. So this is, you know, yeah, explain people what that is. working. <clears throat> so adversarial collaboration is essentially a methodological procedure in which so, – so the norm in, in science is when scholars disagree with each other, they just kind of write replies back and forth to each other and conduct their own research separately and just each side supports their side back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and it creates all this contradictory uh, information and evidence in the literature. Adversarial collaborations are 
when two scientists disagree, they come together and they figure out what's going on. (laughs) What is it you're saying? What is it I'm saying? How are they different? And how can we test between them? What is uh, the most rigorous test we can conduct that we both agree is the right way to test this question? Um, that could show where the truth lies between us, usually between them. Um, And it's a hard thing for some people to do because people have a tendency to want to straw man their opponents and claim that their intellectual opponent is saying something that they're not necessarily saying. They often, scholars are really incentivized to make super broad claims that generalize to everyone at all times. And they also are incentivized to contradict or to, sorry, to um, to portray themselves as contradicting other people because it has to be, whatever they're saying has to be novel. So that means I have to be saying something different from other people who've studied this topic before me. And so they're essentially incentivized to create the perception of disagreement even if there's not a whole lot of disagreement there. Um, So one thing we see when we get these adversarial collaborators together is that sometimes the disagreement is way smaller than either person thought. Sometimes it's hard to figure out if there even is a disagreement in the first place, even though people have been publishing for years that there's a disagreement and we've been fighting about this forever. Um, Yeah, so the, the, the point of those is to try to seriously in like a good faith way work with someone who challenges your you know sort of preferred empirical conclusions and get to the bottom of things and if the data don't turn out the way you hypothesized in advance then you have to say okay (laughs) i'll at least update my beliefs somewhat (laughs) if not you know fully abandon your your previous beliefs Right. And you you have to publish, right? I mean, it's not like you yeah. can back out at the if both parties go in agreeing that they're going to publicize whatever, you know, come what what may. We we say you have to publish. The way that can happen is, you know, either one person moves forward and publishes the paper if the other person doesn't like it, but we also recommend bringing on moderators and the moderator, like a third party, someone who's neutral and doesn't really care. Um the moderator agrees. I'm going to publish this paper, even if one or both of you back out after the data come in. Um, right. And this, so that's this, the way to tie <clears throat> your hands. <laughs> this process of adversarial collaboration, is that was that conceived of by Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner in so economics? So he was not the first one to do an adversarial collaboration. I think the, 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 the sort of methodological procedure was done as early as like 1979. But I believe in 2001 is when Danny Kahneman coined the term and he did one with um, Ralph Hertwig and Barb Mellers as the moderator. And I think that was the first time the term adversarial collaboration has been used. And then he has since then done a handful of them. And I think he's talked about them in some of his books and um, given some talks on them. So he is an advocate (laughs) for them. Um, as is Phil Tetlock, who I uh, we have the adversarial collaboration project at University of Pennsylvania, where essentially our goal is to make these normal in science because right now they're so 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 rare. Um, uh, Phil has also been a proponent of them for a long time, although I think before me he had never actually done one. <laughs> so <laughs> now I'm making him put his money. He likes his talking mattress. about it. Uh, he hadn't quite done it. Um, yeah. If people haven't read Daniel Kahneman's book, is it Thinking Fast and Slow? His 
I think that's the one he mentions it in. Yeah, that's yeah, his, most, his a, most famous one. Yeah, His most famous book. It's a great, great book about how your brain works on sort of two different pathways at the same time and how to spot your own um, psychological uh, biases and failings and be gentle with yourself about the different ways in which your brain works. <laughs> um, have you collaborated with Danny? Have you met Danny Kahneman? I've met him. I have not collaborated with him yet. I hear he's a busy guy. (laughs) (laughs) That would be right. um, (laughs) Phil's wife, Barb, uh, just recently did another adversarial collaboration with him with a young scholar whose name escapes me right now. But I think it just came out earlier this year. Um, And what are the kinds of things that they're they're doing adversarial collaborations on? What sorts of issues? (sighs) So this one was on the relationship between happiness and um, income. So Danny had previously uh, published that um, at a certain level of income, you no longer become happier. And this other is this the guy, idea that once you hit about six figures, then that then you're happy, I think as that happy was as you're going to get, and then one, <laughs> <laughs> once you're over a hundred grand, nothing more is going to make you any happier. Yeah, something like that. And then I think uh, I think the results turned out actually that increased income does make you a little bit happier, but there are some caveats to it. So I don't remember the precise findings, but people can Google it. <laughs> You got to make sure you don't blow it on fentanyl and hand hand jobs in the parking lot. That's the uh, that's the rule of that's the rule it's of life. It's not the answer. It's not the uh, exactly. To happiness. When you say you'd like this 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 program to be uh, to be much more widespread, what would that achieve? Mm-hmm. What would the what would how would the world be different if science was conducted through adversarial collaboration instead of the way that it's done now? I think it could be different in a lot of ways that would be quite nice for science and society. So one thing would be it would help minimize the contradiction in the scientific literature. So, I mean, a lot of people say stuff like trust the science, but then it's like, what science? Like if you look at the published literature, there are so many conclusions that contradict other conclusions and it would be really hard to figure out what you should be trusting, who you should be trusting, which results are the ones that are going to lead to a successful intervention versus not, which has caused so many people to waste so much money on dead ends for things that weren't true, aren't true, um, and aren't going to be helpful to anyone. So I think if in my dream world, when a scientist realizes they're disagreeing with another scientist, the very first thing they do is you know, send that person an email and be like, hey, this is interesting. I found something different. What do you think this means? Let's work together and figure it out. And then rather than two two groups or three groups or five groups of scientists all pushing competing narratives into the literature for years or decades on end and confusing everyone, they just nip it in the bud <laughs> and figure out what's going on. Um, so that would be nice. The other thing is I think it could have potential to sort of change the culture of science. Right now, it's like pretty competitive and scholars' identities get all tied up in their theories. If a scholar is proven wrong by another scholar or at least appears to be proven wrong, um, that's often an embarrassment for that scientist and that scientist rarely changes their belief. Everyone else judges them and mocks them and makes fun of them on Twitter for being stupid and wrong about something. But... It, we, you could imagine we'd have a culture where when people update their beliefs, we respect them and admire them and be like, good, you're a person who follows the data. <laughs> you're a person who changes your mind when you right. are confronted with new evidence. Um, and that shouldn't be humiliating. Like 
so many of us update our beliefs all the time. Why does it have to be a humiliation if a scientist does it? Um, and well, I Twitter also wants to make it a humiliation when we do it as well. So at least they're consistent. <laughs> <laughs> at least the trolls are consistent. In yeah, in their score. Well, I mean, what is that? That tells you that you know that's probably part of human nature, but. Science is an institution. It can have certain norms that potentially can wrangles people's, uh, you know, egos potentially, and mm. and at least instruct people on what they should be evaluating, uh, valuing, and incentivizing in their peers. Um, but in some of these adversarial collaborations, some of them have been a little bit um, uh, contentious, <laughs> but most of them go pretty well. And like what? I think like what? What? Give me an example of a contentious one. <laughs> um, I just mean like there's a lot of going back and forth, arguing about how to interpret a set of findings once the data are in. Um, right, that but is better not that happen between the scientists quickly. themselves than between the onlookers sniping from the farthest reaches of the Coliseum. I, I agree. Um, but there's a question of does the adversarial collaboration improve the interpersonal relationship of the scholars or make it worse <laughs> or ah, keep it the screw them. Who cares about the scholars? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that on average, on average, it will make them better. And so like what you have now is these scholars become enemies and they form like posses and their posses hate each other. And you go to conferences and they avoid each other um, or worse. And I'm like – Adversarial collaborations potentially could turn a lot of these enemies into friends and colleagues. And mm. when you see the person at a conference, you're like, hey, let's get a drink. <laughs> you right, know? right. Like it doesn't have to be as hostile and competitive as it is, I don't think. I could be wrong about that. I mean, it, it, one one upside that I also see is it could serve to restore people's faith in elite opinion because it would mean that yeah. there was more consensus amongst, like, you know, this is one of the things that's taken a huge hit over the past three to five years is people's people's faith in institutions, in the mainstream media, mm -hmm. in scientific institutions, in the, the World Health Organization, in the Centers for Disease Control, in public health in general. Uh, if you could arrive mm -hmm. at, if yeah, if you could sort of sort it out behind the scenes and then arrive at a more robust consensus that had fewer holes in it, it wouldn't be a bad thing mm -hmm. for public faith in authority. Yeah, if rather than having one journal or institution or person saying X and another one saying not X. Instead, everyone's saying, well, kind of X. Here are the contexts in which X is true. Right, <laughs> Then, right. you know, it, yeah, people wouldn't be choosing different information to believe and disregard. Uh, I, I think a lot of this does boil down to just making more nuanced claims, which people don't want to do because they're not as exciting. Um, but that's going to be where the truth is a lot of the time. Um, and so I think finding ways of sort of forcing scientists to acknowledge that and speak in those terms instead of the flashy, um, broad generalizations they like to make would mm. help steer the public and policymakers and uh, interventionists, uh, make them more successful at doing the things they're trying to do and, you know, making people's lives better. Yeah, well, let's hope. You you also talk about the evolutionary pressures for social status and like the evolutionary mm -hmm. costs of being ostracized from your tribe, which is mm -hmm. very pressing in this era of cancel mm -hmm. culture, whatever people might mean by that. Can you can you articulate what those pressures are? Yeah, so when you think about human cognition, 
it's important to think about what what would humans have to do? How would human cognition have to work to promote fitness? So how would it have to work to promote survival and the ability of people to pass their genes on to later generations? And people sometimes want to think that truth is the only thing that matters and that people should be motivated to pursue truth first and foremost. And that is like the thing that would have been selected for to help people survive. But I think there's a really, really obvious one, which is avoiding, I mean, gaining social status is really important because that determines, you know, the resources you get and, you know, the the quality of mates you're going to get and the quantity of mates you're going to get. But avoiding ostracism is so, 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 so important because people were dependent on their social group to survive. If you were abandoned, (laughs) you know, in the woods by yourself, you weren't going to live for very long and you certainly weren't going to reproduce and have successful offspring. Just staging (laughs) staging little cane toad races all by yourself. Yeah, that would not help, help you spread your genes. So people, our human psychology should have evolved in a way that helps us gain social status, but especially really helps us avoid ostracism. And this is why, this is one reason why people tend to um, conform to their group's beliefs. One of the most obvious examples of this is religion. There are tons of different religions all over the world. There have been tons of different religions throughout human history. And people usually tend to be pretty confident that whatever religion they were born into is the correct one. And I don't think those are insincerely held beliefs. I think they're sincerely held beliefs out of the product of I'm going to believe the important beliefs of my social group, the beliefs that are going to help me not get kicked out of the club. Um, so it, it, it impacts what people believe is true, but it also impacts a lot of what people won't say. So I've been looking a little bit at censorship recently and even censorship among scientists and When you interview scientists and survey scientists, this is psychologists, I should say, psychologists in the U.S., so psychology professors, um, you see that it it almost feels like very much like high school, like they're very afraid of being judged and disliked by their peers. They want their peers, you know, they want to be like cool kids in the club. Um, And so when they perceive, you know, topics as potentially socially costly, uh, empirical beliefs as potentially socially costly, they're more likely to self-censor and not talk about their beliefs in front of their peers for fear of being ostracized. They're afraid of other things too. They're afraid of like being called names on Twitter um, and having like professional, you know, professional consequences, like not getting invited to give talks and stuff. But If you're in any kind of social group, it doesn't matter what that social group is or who that social group is, people are motivated to conform to the beliefs, especially the important beliefs of their most important social groups, the ones that they really want to fit into um, and not be booted out from. Mm. Is that dynamic being enhanced at the moment? I mean, being exacerbated Um, at at the moment? I mean, it's because I I don't want to... I don't want to take a scientific finding and superimpose it onto my pre-existing beliefs in order to reinforce <laughs> my biases about what social media is doing and cancel culture yeah. and so on. But as you're talking, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of all the people who say, well, cancel culture isn't a real thing because Louis C.K. still makes money and Barry Weiss mm-hmm. is doing better than ever and Andrew Sullivan has his own gig going on and if they fire me from my public radio show for having conversations like this, then they'll say, Josh is doing fine. He's just gone to YouTube mm-hmm. and he's still making a living, which is, to me, to miss the point. The point is 
nobody likes being <laughs> excluded yeah. from yeah. the organs of society and and polite culture. And of course, you can go off and you can make your own renegade little community as a mm. in in protest. But the actual corrosive effect of cancel culture is a more subtle one, where the conversation gets curtailed because people don't want to be out on the ice floe with Barry Weiss and Louis C.K. They want to be in the in the club, and so they they, they right. watch what they say, just as people in East Germany watched what they said. Uh, you know, even if their lives would have been fine had they been booted out of the country. Um, so, but I don't know where I don't know whether that is valid in this context. I think social media has two sort of different effects, maybe three different effects. So one is with social media, you actually so the it's almost like. The costs of ostracism have both gone up and down, or maybe the risks of ostracism have both gone up and down. One is any there are so many people on Twitter. <laughs> if uh, so many people one on of them, X, you mean on X? On X, on X. If one of them who has enough followers gets mad at something you said, just one of them, and then they, you know do a rally cry to their followers and then they assemble maybe only 1% of them. 99% don't get involved. But 1%, if a person has a lot of followers, that can be hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people and they can put a lot of pressure on the person they're going after. So it makes it that you can, if you piss off one out of millions, hundreds of millions of people and pretty much anything you can say is going to piss off one out of hundreds of millions of people, um, then you're you're at potential risk of uh, you know denunciation or paying a huge price, and this is something psychology professors are worried about too with their students. They're they're afraid that their students, maybe one of their student is an influencer and is really popular on TikTok or Instagram, and maybe they'll say the wrong thing. It'll be taken out of context, and then they'll get a mob after them because of that. So it's everyone is a threat, and everyone's a big threat at the same time. And this is kind of what you were pointing out, although maybe it wasn't the point you were trying to make, is the costs of ostracism sort of have gone down in the sense that if you're kicked out of one group, there are tons of other groups. And so like if Barry Weiss gets kicked out of one group, there's another group there that's going to embrace her. The people that hate the group that she was in before, right? They'll take her on. Um, And so – you can still be successful and you can still find a sort of tribe, even if it's not the tribe that you are trying to be part of. At the same time, of course, everyone would prefer to be mainstream and money isn't the only thing people care about. And even if you make a ton of money, the 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 actual like psychological experience of being ostracized or being kicked out of a club that you are a part of or, you know, being called names by people that you used to really like and you thought really liked you. That's painful, <laughs> mm. even if you're a millionaire. Um, so, yeah, and yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, interesting. yes, uh, the new media landscape has made it possible for people to be, you know, you don't have to be working at the New York Times in order to make a living. In fact, you can make a, li- a better living elsewhere if you have your tribe who will pay for you to do so online. Mm-hmm. But not everybody is a journalist or media commentator. If you're a professor, if you're a scientist, yeah. you don't really have that option. You do have to be inside the institution, don't you? And so, I mean, that's what I think is alarming about your findings that scientists who think that 
if they find unpopular conclusions and, you know, now we can touch all those red hot issues like gender or something like that, you know, if, if scientists mm-hmm. believe that there are <clears throat> biological that there are, for example, uh, psychological behaviours that map onto gender and, or that gender is a, is a binary and is not entirely fluid, you can imagine the reticence to yep. express those conclusions even if they're true because they're afraid of ostracism from their peers and punishment. So is that having a, an impact on professional discourse and the way that we perceive what the scientific consensus is? Almost definitely and those are actually two of the taboo conclusions that psychology professors mention the idea that men and women have evolved different psychological characteristics so we're not just different physically but we're also different psychologically and have slightly different personalities Um, or the idea that biological sex is binary for the vast majority of people people psychology professors who believe those conclusions are empirically correct self-censor their beliefs more than people who don't Um, and I think the question in this one was like for example at professional conferences so this means if the topic comes up at a conference where tons of academics are there they start debating the issue during a talk or a meeting um, the people who think it's false are going to be happy to speak up and share their perspective whereas a lot of the people who think it's true are just going to sit quietly and watch the debate happen which creates the perception that the majority belief is actually not the majority belief of the one and the majority belief is the one that no one's saying out loud because they're afraid of right. paying a high uh, social price so I do think anytime it comes to – and I so in that paper, we looked at 10 different taboo conclusions and we saw the exact same relationship for all 10. So the more people – What were some of the other ones, by the way, Corey? Are true. Uh, yeah, so a lot of them are related to what – well, I'm not sure if you said this, but a lot of them are related to the idea that group differences in any sort of socially valued – so this would be gender differences or race differences for the most part in socially valued outcomes – the idea that those are like innate or natural or evolved or genetically caused and they can't be attributed to things like discrimination. Um, so one of them was I think like um, uh, discrimination is not the primary cause of the underrepresentation of women in STEM or there was one I think related to whether – I don't remember exact phrasing but it was something related to whether – Um, like discrimination among police is not the most important predictor wait is that what it was discrimination anyway it was it was something like a discrimination explanation but um not the most important explanation for um higher crime rates among uh black americans compared to white americans and then other ones that maybe not as controversial like stuff like um uh academia discriminates against political conservatives um or uh, I'm trying to think what were the, some of the other ones that were sort of – oh, um, sexually coercive behavior evolved because it conferred some evolutionary advantages to men who engaged in such behavior. Um, and we see across all 10 of these conclusions that people who think they're true self-censor more than people who don't. So really anytime there's a controversial conclusion, we might be able to assume that the scientific consensus is leaning more toward truth than meets the eye or meets the ear or whatever it is if you're right. hearing this. Just to clarify, that whenever there's a controversial scientific issue, it would be a good rule of thumb to think that the mainstream point of view that is not being, uh, that is not being opposed is probably more wrong than we think it is. 
the mainstream there's not being opposed is more wrong than we think. It's, well, not necessarily more wrong, but that it is less popular than it appears to be. It's less popular among the experts than it appears Socially, to be because the experts have a disincent have an incentive to agree with the status quo and a disincentive to speak up against it. Right. So socially desirable empirical beliefs, people are going to be more willing to say those out loud than controversial empirical beliefs. And so when you're trying to assess what is the popular opinion, what is the majority view among scientists, you can assume that the socially desirable ones are going to be more overrepresented uh, or just overrepresented compared to the people who think the controversial conclusions are true. Um, Right. And this is hard because like you don't want to ask people to – speak up on these issues and risk their career or risk getting called names or or whatever. At the same time, though, when everyone's doing it collectively, you know, if just one or two or 10 or, you know, whatever, a minority of people come out in defense of this empirical conclusion that maybe not everyone thinks is true, but certainly enough scientists think it's true for it to be worth exploring, when those ones step out, one by themselves, they're really easy to attack. But if everyone in unison came forward and shared their beliefs, they're like, no, 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 look, this is not a fringe idea. This is not, you know, a scientifically demonstrated false. Everyone knows this isn't true. Look, 30% of us think it's true. Let's take a look at it. Mm. It would be harder to attack those the group, if everyone would step forward together, but because everyone's staying silent, you know, when just a couple of sort of renegades or people who are willing to take risks for whatever reason come forward, then they're really easy targets for the people on the other end who are sort of trying to say, no, look, everyone thinks this thing is false, so we should mm. stop studying it. That's another thing we see is the people who have socially desirable beliefs are more supportive of discouraging further research into these questions. So they're more desirous of wanting to end empirical exploration. And then enter the the algorithms of social media to to nudge us into self-reinforcing echo chambers that make us feel like our belief is even more popular than it already is because we only hear from people (laughs) who either agree with us or we see caricatures of the other side. We don't hear nuanced points of view from the other side because we're not going to engage with those so they're not going to get the clicks um i mean it it sounds like you're sort of articulating a kind of prisoner's dilemma amongst rational Mm -hmm. rational people where the the disincentive for the individual to act is high Mm -hmm. but the community requires that we have uh, a collective i mean it's a collective action problem basically that we have collective action from people who are making sense so maybe in addition to uh, you know, not not going to tell Daniel Kahneman how to do his job or you, but in addition <laughs> to adversarial collaborations, maybe we need a context for some kind of uni- uni- unified action or anonymized uh, action. You know, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to get an, an anonymous poll of all of the world's evolutionary biologists mm-hmm. <laughs> about issues, about some of these really controversial issues where... Mm-hmm social justice advocates claim that the issue is settled and that if you Mm -hmm. disagree with them, then you're just a bigot. Um, Well, that's that's precisely what I was trying to do with this survey was like, let's see where people's empirical beliefs actually fall when you ask them in an anonymous survey. And I suspect even in an anonymous survey, some people are still a little nervous and might lie about <laughs> well, their Well, they don't want to feel bad about themselves either, do they? they I mean, if you've, yeah, absorbed, right, if you've drunk right. the Kool-Aid, you don't want to feel like you're oh, on the yeah. wrong side of history. It's true. It's true. So, 
so yeah, like I, I wanted to see where people's empirical beliefs fell. Um, and I think that's something that actually could give people courage if they realize, oh, it's not just me. A lot of people think this thing might be true or a lot of people think that thing is false. Um, mm. That that could be the thing that gives people the courage to speak up or at least they have a data point to point to when someone says this is a settled issue, no more research. They could say, well, it's not. Look. 20% of people think that this is plausible um, of psychology professors. Mm. But I agree. Mm. It would be great if other scholars, not me, <laughs> could do this <laughs> on a much larger scale mm. and get the the views of all of the experts on all the controversial questions um, so we can know which things are actually settled and which things are just too controversial to keep discussing right now. I feel like it should be systematized. Someone should do this. Like, Fire or one of these other free speech uh, organizations should just have an annual uh, voluntary anonymous poll that they do of the world's leading experts in things and they could just publish it, uh, you know, about whatever the most controversial issues are. I might talk to them about that. I think we've just solved the world's problems, Corey. <laughs> I'm friends with the researchers over there too, so maybe I could convince them to do that. The thing is people yeah. would be critical of it because they'd be like, you know, fire is this particular type of institution. So the only scholars paying attention to them are people who have a particular set of beliefs. So it's not representative of academics. Okay, so fire probably, teams up with the ACLU. There we go. <laughs> there's your, you're right. Or, <laughs> yeah, or and they, there's your, your adversarial they, collaboration. They team up with just some general polling, you know, they, which they have done, but not on sure. this topic. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, another another point that you make about these sorts of taboos and and going out on the risk of going out on a limb uh, on controversial social and cultural and political issues is that there's a the the the, the boundary of the taboo is is fuzzy as you put it. Mm-hmm. It's not delineated clearly about what you are and aren't allowed to say. And you think that that's intentional. Um. So. I think I have suggested that it's potentially intentional. And other people have suggested that too. I think it would be hard to know for sure. So one thing, if you if you want to control other people and you want to, you know, make them afraid of of you and of violating your standards or whatever, then it's really useful to have sort of random attacks. <laughs> like you can't control everyone. You can't go after everyone. But, you know, once in a while you see something you don't like, you've got time on your hands, <laughs> you go after someone and it, it, it starts to look to other people as really unpredictable behavior. And then that means that you're, where you're going to draw the line yourself is going to become more cautious. So like I think the example I've given is if like you're driving on a highway but there's no speed limit, no one tells you that this is as fast as you can go. What are you, you going to do? You're going to try to estimate how fast other people are going that are pulled over. And if you see someone get pulled over at 75, okay, I guess I can't go 75. Then you see someone get pulled over at 45, you're like, oh, wow, I guess I can't go 45. <laughs> and even if you see other people going 55, you might be like, well, I know 45 can get me pulled over, so I guess I'm going to go 40. <laughs> this sounds like the situation in Sydney, by the way, where it's so difficult it? to speed because there are speed cameras everywhere and it's oh, ex- the police are extremely strict. So taking you literally, but at least they post, uh, I, I feel they your post pain. the speed they limit. They do post the speed limit, yeah. So, yeah. So I think uh, if, if people don't know what the rules are and they don't know where the line is and, and people don't want to make these rules explicit because people get called out for that. Like if they give specific examples like 
we will come after you if you publish this conclusion. Well, now you look like a censorious, you know, anti-liberal, non-scientist person who doesn't care about the truth and doesn't care about research. You're making rules about what people can and cannot study. So people don't want to explicitly tell anyone, these are the topics that I'm going to come after you for. Or these are the conclusions that if you publish, then I'm going to try to get your paper retracted or I'm going to try to get you fired or whatever. Um, so we don't have those clear guidelines. Um, and then some of the attacks of people, to me at least, strike me as fairly random. Like one of the papers that really surprised me was this one by a woman named Bedor Al-Shebli on female mentorship. And she found that essentially um, – Female mentees who had female mentors uh, were less impactful later in their careers than um, female mentees with male mentors or male mentees with female mentors or male mentors, I think. Anyway, they were like the least successful of the group. And so the conclusion was kind of like, well, maybe female mentors aren't as good as male mentors. Um, and of course, I knew people would not like that conclusion in psychology and academia. People don't like conclusions that portray women as worse at anything good. Uh, than men so I knew that but I didn't know people were gonna get so <laughs> angry about it and create such a storm on Twitter and uh, essentially pressure this uh, woman into retracting her own paper like to me gender or sex or whatever it's not that controversial of a topic it's not as controversial as trans issues it's not as controversial as race issues People publish on gender things pretty regularly without getting in trouble. But now you see this and you're like, well, I guess I'm not going to study anything <laughs> with gender differences or certainly not anything where it's possible women will look worse than men. Mm -hmm. And so that puts a whole entire set of topics as off limits, um, which is, I guess, another risky thing about my, my taboos paper is that we see that you know, women are less supportive of academic freedom than men. They're more likely to hold socially desirable beliefs and they're more willing to punish and ostracize their peers for publishing hmm. controversial conclusions. So that one might get me into some hot water too. In fact, one of the one of the fun findings in that paper is on the empirical claim that men and women have different psychological characteristics because of evolution male psychologists are more likely to think that's true than female psychologists. <laughs> oh, um, wow. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and we see that consistently across pretty much every single thing we looked at in the paper. We see differences between male psychologists and female psychologists. Um, and now, now it, you know, I, I wouldn't have been that worried about that finding. I'm more worried about it now because right. people might say, oh, women are censorious and they're anti-science and they can't do science and, um, you know, they're mean to their peers. Right, uh, right. And, and, and that's the thing. Like you can frame the conclusions in more, uh, you know, inflammatory ways if you want to. And that's what people try to do when they find a conclusion they don't like is that they – draw it out to like the worst possible conclusion like oh i guess you're saying women can't vote or shouldn't mm, vote mm, <laughs> but it's like right, no right <laughs> this is the finding right. and that's the end of it like the yeah. implications or the applications or what we do with that 
information. Think of people totally how people are going to misuse it, Corey. They're going to, yeah, you have to be, be, take I'm responsibility. Not too for about it. people coming after women's right to vote, but if they do, and it's my fault, then I will. I will. You're take blind to the patriarchy's attacks, haven't you seen, Barbie? Um, yeah, <laughs> you remind <laughs> you're reminding me a little bit of the situation that happened recently with Yoel Inbar, who's a mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, I don't know if you know Yoel, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, psychologist who he sort of came out about this experience that he had where he was essentially offered a job at I think it was uh, University of California and UCLA, yeah, was it UCLA? Was it yeah? And um, yeah, you know, a bunch of students and activists dug up something that he'd said on a podcast years ago, being skeptical about whether or not diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and mandates and sort of statements that you have to write up are actually good for minorities or whether they're sort of a language game that white educated people play with each other to just demonstrate their fealty to mm-hmm. um to popular causes and to look good to each other and his you know the offer was ultimately retracted and he didn't get the job because of this huge pile on and this is, this so is just sort of one example he didn't actually get the offer but it it seemed likely that he was going to because he was invited to interview after his partner got an offer but yeah, yeah. it was essentially like they were giving him all the signs of this is happening we're excited for it to happen and then all of a sudden they were like, look what the students did. Yeah, Never and there was mind. nothing mysterious about it. There was a huge letter signed by yeah. like hundreds of people uh, saying that he was like uh, 80, demonizing yeah. him or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it was a, it was a big push. It to, was a number. To block him. It was a yeah. number. Um, yeah, so that that reminds me of the, of the kind of fuzzy boundary. Like who would have thought mm-hmm. however many years ago that he was recording that podcast that that, yeah. would, that, that was such a social taboo? I mean, and similarly, you can find examples of, I don't know, professors, you know, the professor who was saying that Chinese word that sounds a little bit like the N oh, word right, yeah, and then yeah. lost his job for it or something like that. Yeah. You know, these are, it's a, there, are, there, there are these breaches that are only apparent mm-hmm. after the mob has concluded that they were unforgivable. But in advance, it's a bit difficult to, to predict. Um, yeah, so plenty it, of people it, have been critical of like diversity statements and what they accomplish and some of them pay it have consequences but i think probably most of them don't and the fact that this could potentially cause a person a job seems like a huge co- and and no less from the grad students who are only there temporarily like they don't have to work with right. him and they don't have to be his colleague uh but the, the faculty do <laughs> and yeah. yet they prioritized this concern from the set of grad students which is very bizarre to me and yeah it, it to me it also would have been yoel is not He's not a controversial guy. Like no, this is not. He's ben not Shapiro like the most vanilla about. psychologist ever. But he's like you know barely spicier than average. I would say, right. you know, <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah. But, but it's a shot across the bow, also... isn't it? It's a it's a warning sign. It's a way of saying don't touch don't touch this at all. Don't think yeah, you can exactly. You know, don't think you can play around in this space. I, this I did a, listen a space to where conversations happen. The, the podcast episode that Yoel was on on Very Bad Wizards where they talked about yeah. it. And I don't usually listen to that podcast, but they did imply that both of the hosts had been quite skeptical of the concept of cancel culture until it happened to Yoel. And like, at least 
at least if we learn anything from this it's like yeah. nobody's safe and this I've is argued, happening <laughs> i've argued with tamla and david about this uh yeah. who are the hosts of very bad mm-hmm. wizards it's a good show if people uh, haven't haven't heard it it's um but uh yeah they are generally sort of like you know fairly dismissive of the cancel culture hy- hysteria and then all of a sudden uh, this happens and they mildly uh, they mildly tweak their priors um <laughs> See. Well, yeah. Good. Okay. Um, well, that's that's great. I don't want to keep you any longer. But what's the what's your final thoughts? Like, give us the give us the wrap up of how people what what people should take away from this about how we think about how we think about <laughs> other people <laughs> and ourselves. Um, I think the takeaway is that we should all exercise a little bit of humility <laughs> in our beliefs. Um, be kinder to other people who disagree with us and not contribute to the problems by ostracizing people for their beliefs um and oh here's one here's a quick finding that i really liked from the paper i asked psychology professors how much admiration versus contempt they have for people who start social media campaigns to get papers retracted or professors fired for moral reasons and this was on a zero to a hundred scale And the modal response was zero, maximum contempt. And so I think something that's missing from sort of our – what we're capable of perceiving on social media is we don't see the judgment that's happening – or rather, we don't see the size of the judgment that's happening toward the people who try to get other people canceled because people are scared of those people. (laughs) And so some people will critique them, but most people are sitting at home – looking at them and saying, wow, what assholes, (laughs) and not saying anything. And so, like, the feedback you get on social media is easy to see, but you're only seeing 5% of it. You're not seeing the other 95% of people saying, that's really mean. Maybe we should be a little bit more generous to other people and assume that they have, you know, that they're decent people who are not morally bankrupt and just trying to screw everyone else over. Mm, And they just have some sincere beliefs and think – They have some opinions about what's best for other people. You know, maybe you agree with it. Maybe you don't. Um, And so I think, you know, just being kinder to other people and not piling on is in the long run going to be a better strategy for your own reputation. That's very interesting. So avoid the temptation to be censorious and judgmental, even if yeah. it seems like you're getting away avoid with it. Avoid the temptation the right to just be, to be mean to other people. Yeah, <laughs> call people News memes. Flash. There's no point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, I think we've just the moral philosophers have wrestled for for millennia <laughs> with this, and we've just Solved. nailed it in uh, in one hour and fourteen minutes. Thank you, Corey. Lovely to meet you. That was really interesting. Great meeting you. Thanks so much for having me.